Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello everybody, it's Ian here. Welcome to episode 20 of the TJF podcast. I'm not going to talk for long, because I've got a horrible cough, and nobody wants to hear me coughing. Uh, I was coughing a bit in the last um, podcast, I should have edited those out, but um, apologise for that. So we're going to go straight into the interview today, which is going to tell you everything you need to know about police helicopters. I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, so this week um, I'm delighted to be interviewing Adrian Bleece, um, who uh, was a air uh, observer in a police helicopter for many years in the east of England. And uh, interestingly, he's also written a book all about that. So um, that's going to be really interesting chatting to him about the book. Um, and the book is called Above the Law, all about his years as a helicopter observer. So, um, Adrian, welcome to the TJF podcast. Um, do you want to just sort of introduce yourself briefly? I've kind of done a bit of that already, haven't I? But introduce yourself briefly uh what what you did how long you did it for and and then we'll get into the meat and the bones of it thanks ian yeah uh well yes i was an air observer on on police helicopters uh for for 12 years um uh, mainly with uh, suffolk constabulary mm-hmm. uh, but also we worked with essex and cambridgeshire quite closely and then towards the end of my service with uh, with npas national police air service so there's no risk of flying into mountains then where you were working no, no, you, you actually can, can see most of Suffolk if you stand on a chair. <laughs> well, it's funny that, that you, you've worked in Suffolk because I interviewed Tom Farrell yesterday and um, Suffolk, ex-Suffolk police uh, officers and staff are like London buses, aren't they? Because he was ex-Suffolk. So within a week, I've interv- I'm interviewing two people from Suffolk because it's, it's one of those funny old place, isn't it? Um, do, do, do you come from Suffolk? Is that where you come from? No, no. Uh, I was I was born in well, I was born in Lancashire as it was then uh, in in Salford, just outside Manchester. Uh, and then they uh, then they changed the boundaries and it became Greater Manchester. So I didn't fancy that. So right. uh, we moved out to the to the Lancashire coast, and I grew up there until I was eighteen. All right. Okay. So um, I believe you were in the RAF um, originally. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't take the direct route from from Lancashire to to Suffolk. I, I went via uh, sort of 
Lincolnshire and, and Cornwall in the north of Scotland, uh, like, right. a, like a pinball machine. <laughs> yeah, I was in I was in the Royal Air Force for six years. Flew on uh, Nimrod Maritime Patrol aircraft, right, doing uh, search and rescue and uh, and hunting for Russian submarines and that kind of thing. Oh wow, um, fantastic! And uh, unfortunately, I, I damaged my ears, so I couldn't fly anymore. So right, uh, so, I, so I left the Air Force after after six years. All right, so um, that must have been so long. Many you said six years, did you say? Yeah, in the yeah. RAF. Okay, so that must have been interesting. Um, yeah, sort of playing. I mean, I don't really understand much about that other than you know what you see on telly and what have you. But um, did presumably you would have gone off way up into the Arctic Circle and all those sort of places looking for subs? Would you? Yeah, uh, basically looking for submarines that had come through the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap, um, and right. um, and also sort of the Mediterranean and and so on and out into the Atlantic, out to sort of ten degrees west over the Atlantic. Right. So mainly well. Over water most of the time. Right. Okay. So you got to do a lot of travel, I imagine, doing that, did you? A fair amount. Yeah. Yeah. We went. We went to a few places. Um, we uh, we spent lots of time in places like uh, Gibraltar and Sicily and Iceland. Right. Just because of where they were, you know, the entrance to the Mediterranean and the, and the gap between. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Between Russia and the and the uh, and the Atlantic. Okay. So um, so obviously uh, you were doing a kind of a similar-ish kind of role, I suppose, in the RAF, but um, on fixed-wing aircraft. So did you go straight from the RAF into policing then? No, no. Um, a lot of people had, had predicted that I should. In fact, they had when I was at school. They said, you know, you look like you should be a copper. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but no, I, I didn't do that. I um, I had several jobs in sort of sales and marketing and that kind of thing between uh, between right. leaving the air force and and um, starting to work for suffolk constabulary uh, i started work there in the control room first right. of all as a control room operator so answering the 999 calls and dispatching right. officers to jobs and, and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and i spent spent three years doing that before the chance came to to work on the helicopter all right, brilliant. And and do you think your background in the RAF was that was that sort of advantageous in terms of you applying for that role, or was it really so different that it didn't really make much difference? That was certainly what I tried to convince them of in the interview. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think my three years in the control room did far more than my six years in the in the RAF. Right. Obviously, I was I was I was used to operating in the air, so that that didn't offer me any 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 challenges or anything like that because it was where i was used to working but right. the job the job was very very different uh, okay. even though I, I wouldn't have admitted that in the interview as well. yeah 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 i mean can i just caveat everything i'm going to say or everything i'm going to ask you with i know absolutely jack shit about helicopters and the police even though i was in the police for 30 years i'll just say i i know probably all i know about the helicopters this is why i'm really interested in in uh, excited in interviewing you because there's so many things I'd, I'd like to I'm curious about um my experience my my only experience of police helicopters is b- being that person and dying on the ground in generally in the dark mm-hmm. um being directed by the helicopter to some bloke who's who's just run away from a stolen car uh who's hiding <laughs> um, yeah I don't I don't think that uh, that the, the public realise that a lot of what we do is is sort of left a bit, right a bit. No, not that right. The other right. <laughs> <That's> stop, right. <laughs> stop there. Go back the way that you were going. Uh, right. A lot of a lot of our evenings were spent that way. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And I, I um, so it was a long time ago since I did anything with helicopters because I was probably 
a uniform inspector or probably maybe even a sergeant actually then i can definitely remember one night when i was a sergeant in coventry and a, a lad as they do he'd run away from a stolen car or whatever and um <clears throat> and then they always go go to grind don't they and um so um you know the the brighter ones keep moving uh and the less intelligent ones think that by hiding generally in the thickest clump of brambles or something that we're not going to be able to get to them so uh so yeah yeah so it's really i used to find it fascinating you know listening to the air operators um you know talking you in to look because you couldn't see because when you're on the ground you can't see bloody anything you know it's absolutely pitch black most of the time and yet obviously with the infrared cameras they can see quite a lot can't they yeah it can be quite difficult to remember actually Sort of if you were the rear seat observer, because I, I don't know if people know, there are generally two observers and one pilot in a police helicopter in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and, and the one in the front mm. is is um, using the camera and at night searching with the, the thermal imaging camera. And it's the one in the rear who's talking to the officers on the ground and doing a left, right and that kind of thing. Right. But obviously, when you're trying to direct people, you tend to be watching the thermal imaging picture. Mm -hmm. uh, to see where where the offender is and where the officers are going and try and match the two up and then yeah. occasionally you look out of the window and you realize it's absolute pitch blackness yeah there. yeah 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 yeah. particularly i imagine because you were in a largely rural location so you don't even yeah. have the benefit of street lights or anything you know yeah in lots of in lots of places that was very much the case wow yeah. so yeah. just sort of backtracking a bit then to when you first um joined the police then so so you went into a control room environment. Um, so that's an interesting one, because obviously many, many moons ago, when I first got promoted, as I describe in my book, I got this, I, I, when I got promoted to inspector, I got the shit inspector's job, which at that time <laughs> was the control room. Well, it was called the ops center, which did a number of different things, but it also did the control room. And my experience of that environment, I don't know if it, if it chimes with your experience, but my experience of that environment was that it had a lot of disgruntled cops in there who didn't want to be there um, or they were either ill or injured, they had long-term injuries, whatever. So that was the police officers. They were a kind of an unhappy bunch. Um, and then you had a mixture of police officers and police staff. And actually I find working with the police staff way easier than working with the police officers. Did you, did you sort of experience any of that? Well, um, Suffolk was was very keen on civilianisation of any role that didn't need a, a you know a warrant card really. So right. so there were, when I went into the control room, it was probably 50-50 police officers and police staff. Uh, right. But over over the three years that changed, and it was probably eighty percent civilian staff by the time I went onto the helicopter. Um, and you write about a lot of the police officers in there. Uh, most of them were coming towards the end of their thirty years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, a few of them have picked up injuries and that sort of mm. thing on the way. Mm. But certainly the ones that I remember working with were all rather grateful they weren't out fighting on the streets anymore. Right. Uh, so I actually seemed quite grateful to be in there. Mm. And um, we certainly learned a great deal from them. And it was really useful having having the police officers in there. And I, I, I actually think that the split of 50-50 worked quite well because you generally yeah. had a copper next to you. And so, you know, you can mm. say, well, you know, what does that mean or is that actually an offense or yeah, what should i yeah. do with this yeah whereas when it's all civvies in there and none of you have ever <clears throat> spent any time 
mm. out on the streets and that kind of thing it can be it can be very difficult to give some answers yeah and and how did you find when you joined did you did you feel welcomed by the wider police family so to speak uh, I did. I always did in Suffolk. Um, it, it was it was a family, mm. uh, you know, and I really I really felt that way all of the time that I worked with Suffolk. Um, yeah, I mean, there were you know the the odd uncles that you'd only have round at Christmas, mm, uh, yeah. and, and there were uh, but and there were the the cousins that you saw once every three years. <laughs> you've been, and there were. Went to see them in prison. Yeah. yeah, and they were the people who felt like brothers and sisters. You know? yeah, so yeah. it was it, it was it was terrific. I loved my time in the control room. Absolutely right. loved it. Good. So um, so when you obviously applied and you were successful in your application to go to air operations, um, what was that? What what did that process involve? The selection process. It it was a long time. Um, it started in I guess. Uh, sort of April or May with the the usual uh, paper sift, so the usual application form where you try and write mm-hmm. absolutely everything down that's even slightly related to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, then after the paper sift, uh, we went to uh, the Royal Air Force um, Officer and Aircrew Selection Centre at um, RAF Cranwell. Right. And went through a, a whole battery of computerised tests there, some sort of some mental arithmetic and some... Uh, where you'd see odd shapes and you'd have to mm. pick which one matched and all sorts of odd mm. tests that just yeah. came after you at you one after the other. Um, and, uh, and that sort of slimmed the candidates down a little bit. Right. Uh, then there was the fitness test, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, the same fitness test that firearms officers uh, have to pass mm-hmm. um, and which I failed on the first attempt. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there was a flight test. So you went, uh, flying in the helicopter and uh, basically had to navigate it around certain uh, set points in the county, right. and then they they'd throw a few curveballs in to see if you could. Uh, so when you say navigate, um, was that using using literally um, paper maps and looking down and seeing, trying to figure out where you are? How did that? Yeah, yeah. I'd, although you get extra points if you called them charts rather than maps. I've got no, I've got no idea why they look just like maps to me. Okay. But uh, yeah, you'd be given you'd be given a, a map and uh, a protractor and a ruler and a, and a China graph pencil, uh, oh. and be told that you know your first job would be in Sudbury, for instance, and right. then you'd be going on to uh, to somewhere else, and you'd plan to. Uh, to go to Sudbury and right. you'd tell the pilot which way to fly and roughly how long it was going to take you and uh, and off you went and presumably a lot of that is now you know done by GPS I mean was it was there was a GPS when you started that role there was there was there was a really good for the time anyway uh, moving map system on the helicopter but uh, that wasn't something that you used when you were when you're going through the, the selection process. Right. So so this was a select part of the selection rather yeah. than how you did it when you were actually doing the yeah. job. Yeah, yeah. But things like um, things like picking out individual roads and things. The systems now are fantastic, and they tell you what road the camera is looking at and what road you're pointing at and all sorts of things. Uh, but then that was uh, even operationally that was down to having a, a sort of A to Z. Uh, right. and, uh, and and doing it that way yeah i remember them well i was on a surveillance team for a few years and uh, we used to have the big a4 size geographies as we called them you know and on a surveillance team you would literally drive with one of those on your on your knees you know it was like 
um, and trying to drive and look at that bloody map at the same time and talk on the comms and everything. It was all, it was massive multitasking. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so you obviously got through that process then. Um, and then was there a training course in order to actually, before you even started, obviously? Yep. Yep. There were, there were two of us, two civvies, uh, who got the job at the time. Um, mm. and we went off to, uh, what is known as the International Police Air Training School. Right. Where's that? It... <laughs> well, it's, it's obviously a major UK international airport. It, right. it's, it's in Gloucester. In Gloucester. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's actually... international. Is, that, is it international or is it? Is it... They, they had had students from overseas. Right. Um, basically, it was, it was one bloke in a helicopter. Oh, okay. Uh, it was part of uh, Police Aviation Services, who are a big company. Right. provide helicopters and, and pilots to to various police forces in the days before NPAS. Yeah. Um, but they had this this one guy who who basically taught you everything that you needed to know to be able to operate as a as a police air observer. And how how long was the course for? Two weeks. Right, okay. Pretty intense, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, very intense. Um and it covered lots of theory and lots of flying around in a helicopter. Right. Um, and so you do that, you know, you do the theory bit first and then you'd go out in the helicopter two at a time and, and practice it and practice doing things like uh, pursuits yeah. and uh, and finding locations and searching mm. for things at night and using the searchlight yeah. and using the camera, yeah, talking yeah, on the yeah. radios, all of, all of those kind of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then at the end of that, there was uh, an examination and, uh, and a flight test to pass at the end of that before you went back to your own force. So there were six of us on that course, the two of us from, um, from Suffolk, uh, two police officers from Cambridgeshire, and two police officers from one of the Yorkshire forces. I can't remember which. Okay. They had to have their own interpreter, did they? Kind of <laughs> well, being a northerner, I kind uh, of understand Yorkshireman. Okay, yeah, of course you're from Not quite. Not yeah. quite, though, because I'm from <laughs> Lancashire, so I don't, don't quite understand them. You have to speak slowly. <laughs> so um, that's, uh, yeah, I used to find my experience of police training courses was always that anything that was um, of a very practical nature, the courses tended to be very, very good. Um, and, and bore quite strong relationship to actually doing the job itself. So, um, for example, you know, a driving course or a firearms course or a surveillance course, something like that, the courses are extremely good and were very, very similar, really, to what you would actually end up doing. Whereas an awful lot of the other courses did in police policing um, bore almost no relation whatsoever to, um, you know, ultimately the job that you would end up doing. Um, so, but it sounds from what you've just said there that that um, there was a lot of realism in that training, wasn't there? There was, yeah. Uh, I mean, the guy who was training us, a chap called Rick Newson, uh, he'd been an air ambulance pilot uh, mainly, but had also flown for the police, and um, he was teaching us. He was teaching us more about how to operate in the air than to operate as police officers, because mm-hmm. obviously. The police officers knew that, and and both uh, and the the other uh, civilian who got the job, a chap called Roger Lewis, he'd spent twelve years in the police driving school as well, so he right. knew the force inside out as well. Um, yeah, so they they weren't. He wasn't really teaching us the police use of an aircraft. He was just mm-hmm. teaching us skills from the air, which yeah. could then be transferred over to uh, to being a, a police air observer. Right. 
And then when we came back to, to our own force, we had two weeks learning our own procedures and our own kit on the aircraft, which was, which was different to the aircraft that we'd trained on. Right. Uh, and then you're kind of shadowed for a few months as well. So they don't let you loose straight away? No. <laughs> so where were you actually based from? Where did you fly from? Wattisham. Wattisham Airfield in the middle of Suffolk. Right, uh, okay. And it's more or less slap bang in the middle of Suffolk. There's there's nowhere more than 17 minutes flying time from that base. And, and and you said it's, that that covered um, not just Suffolk then, that was other, other forces as well? It, it was just Suffolk. Um, we were, oh, we were the, the Suffolk was. helicopter. There was one in Essex to the south, one in Cambridge to the west, and Norfolk <clears> up to the north had a part-time helicopter. So they just leased in a helicopter and a pilot for, for one shift a day, six days a week or something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, But then as time went on and uh, as as the the possibility of NPAS grew, mm. and the, the area that we covered grew and grew over time. Right. So um, obviously, there's a lot of um, you know. We'll talk about NPAS uh, in a little bit because certainly I remember there was a very, very distinct, almost a line in the sand that was n- like night and day compared to the world before NPAS and the world after NPAS. And I can remember very clearly as an operational officer thinking, "Where are the bloody hell of all the helicopters gone?" Um, and, um, you know, getting a helicopter felt almost impossible uh, after. Uh, so we'll, we'll come on to talk about that yeah. in, a, in a little bit. But um, just talk about the, the actual job itself. So when you were actually, so you've been trained, um, you've been let loose, um, and then you're being sort of, um, you know, deployed in, in anger. How, how was that? Was, did that? Did that feel kind of um, pretty nerve-wracking initially when you're actually doing the job for real? It, it could do. It depended what the job was. Um, something like a, a search for an offender. Um, once you'd got the location that you were going to search in, uh, then that was actually quite relaxed because you just took your time to cover the area as you needed but something like a pursuit which was which is you know very fast moving and things like mm. that that really that really got you working no yeah. matter what your experience but certainly when you first started out that was uh, that was a real heart thumping uh, moment when the pursuit came in over the radio when somebody yeah. called failed to stop and you you yeah. launched immediately into the sky and caught up with that car yeah. yeah so how long would it take you between being say you're at your base um how long would it take you to get airborne from, say, you're, you're, sat, you're sat in your base, having a cup of tea, and a call comes in that there's a pursuit of car failing to stop. Um, how long would it take you to get in the air from? Less than two minutes. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah sort of seconds if it was something like a pursuit. And obviously, given that in those days, you your county had its own helicopter, then mm. the the, the the distance that you're going to have to, to go is never going to be too extreme, is it, I suppose? No, I mean, we're, uh, Ipswich is the biggest place in, in Suffolk. It's not a big place, but it's the biggest place in Suffolk. That was that was less than five minutes away to the edge of Ipswich. Uh, right. And that was where a lot of our work was. Um, Lowestoft was the, was the furthest away. That was about 16, 17 minutes flying time. So. Right, so... Yeah, so it's it's kind of mad, isn't it? And I certainly my experience of being in those being on the grind in those pursuits, you know, what's all happening, it's all 
it's all a bit crazy, isn't it, really? You know, it's all happening very, very fast. And there's an awful lot of things to be thinking about, you know, when you're, particularly if you're operate, if you're the, the operator on the response car and you're having to navigate, you're having to do the commentary, you're having to, um, you know, think about other risks to, you know, what's going on while letting the driver get on with driving the car without mm-hmm. crashing or hurting someone. Um, but it must be pretty hair-raising to be watching this from the sky, um, particularly if 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 it starts getting really, really dangerous, you know, if if people start crashing and or start running and, you know, it must get a bit uh, chaotic, I'd imagine. Yeah, it can do. But we felt, I think, that our job was to take the pressure off, off all of you doing the job on the ground. So you didn't have to worry about the traffic that was coming up ahead because we were worrying about that for you. You didn't have to worry about the the, the road conditions so much because we could tell you what was coming up around the next corner. You didn't have to get up close to the car because we weren't going to lose the car. Mm. Um, and likewise, because you could back off slightly, it took some of the pressure off the person being pursued as well. So mm. they perhaps yeah. didn't have to drive quite so much like an idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of them hadn't read that part of the script, but yeah. you know, they uh, yeah. that was hopefully what we could do: take that pressure off everybody and give everybody time to think of the tactics and have mm. a look ahead at what was coming up and think of places where you could put the stinger and and all yeah. of that kind of thing. Um, so I think we made pursuit safer for everybody involved and for yeah. and for the you know the bystanders who who weren't involved who all too sadly do get caught up yeah. in pursuit. Yeah, definitely. Now. So what was the longest pursuit you got involved in in terms of presumably they're going to go cross cross border? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where did you where did you take bandit vehicles, um, you know, on the longer pursuits? Well, really only over into Essex and Cambridgeshire. I don't remember right. going uh, going. Although, no, no, did go into the Met area uh, once or twice. Um, so all the way down the A12 into the Met area and, and mm. the M25 and things like that. Um, so they could go on for 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 quite a while. Um, mm. We found that uh, that fairly soon after we introduced the helicopter to Suffolk, the pursuit started to started to tail off because right. those who were used to yeah. uh, having a pursuit found out that they weren't going to get away anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they they dumped the car immediately that there were blue lights behind them, so we couldn't get overhead and and uh, and and help out. Um, but there were still those there were still those big pursuits. I remember one with a um, with a transit van, which wasn't wasn't actually that high speed, really. Mm. Um, but he was uh, he was uh, high as a kite and had no concern for anybody else whatsoever. Mm. It mm. started off on the on the wrong carriageway of the A12, so going south on the northbound carriageway of the A12, mm. um, and went all round uh, little lanes and things. And I. I lost count of the number of police cars he collided with on the oh way, God. Yeah. and and did it quite intentionally as well, and yeah, because yeah. he had a because he had a, a a transit van, there was there was less they could do, you know. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah, a, yeah. a big old a big old thing. So that that went on for quite some time, even though it wasn't a particularly high speed one. Yeah, it was, uh, it was the hair speed. raising the hair raising ones were always the motorbikes I used to find, um, you know, because they would go off like a scalded cat, wouldn't they? Yeah. And um, you know, we couldn't keep up with them on the ground, but obviously the helicopter would try to. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's all it's all when you're doing it's great. 
I mean, you shouldn't say this is it's great fun, but it is great fun. It know? was great fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, you're very conscious of the fact that um, what you're doing is very dangerous and members of the public, um, you know, are being put at risk and you have to be very careful not to do anything. And certainly I know that the control room staff will call things off as soon as it starts getting that way, won't they? Yeah. Um, the risk assess it continuously. Um, but it is when you're on the ground, um, it is absolutely it's the best fun you'll ever have with your clothes on, you know. Yeah, most people you know have to watch uh, police interceptors or or, or or these motorway cop things on the TV, and we got paid to go and do that. It was, yeah. You know, it's, of course it was fun, uh, and all of the other things that you said. Yeah, yeah. And with the on the point of the control room calling things off, what what we found was when the control room did call the pursuit off. Uh, we'd just stay on the pursuit. Mm. Sometimes we'd we'd let on to that fact. Sometimes yeah. we wouldn't, um, because the the vehicle had to stop eventually. Mm. You know, yeah. even yeah, if yeah. they even if they go home or they dump yeah. the car, yeah, yeah. then uh, then the vehicle's got to stop eventually. So quite a few times we did uh, we did uh, end a pursuit in that way by watching them dump the car and yeah. walk off home and then directing a car back into them and that kind of thing. It's always funny. It used to make me laugh when um, you know you'd find them. Um, you know, I say uh, hiding in a culvert or something or in a ditch, a muddy ditch and or under a load of brambles. And the, generally the dogs will will flush them out, won't they? Um, and they come out huffing and puffing and um, filthy, dirty and com- <laughs> complaining that, you know, what's wrong? You know, I'm only on my way home from the pub and what yeah. you caught. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, acting all, all innocent, you know, and they're absolutely sweating buckets because they've been running for you know half a mile and yeah. uh jumping over garden fences and everything it's dead funny you know there's some of the stories that they come out with what they've been doing you know but uh yeah as soon as they see the uh video the cctv from the helicopter they have to change their change the tune a bit don't they i remember i remember one it was a, it was a really really terrible pursuit you know it was it was on the wrong side of the road and going through um you know petrol station forecourts and everything to get away and it was called off by by the control room and uh, we continued following it with the you know the idea that eventually it would stop and um about a mile from from the the registered keeper's house he uh, he abandoned the car and there were two of them in it yeah. And they they headed off down the country lanes in the darkness, and we watched them uh, on the thermal imager all the way. And every time a car came across the country lane, they dive into the hedgerow and that kind of thing. And, and, mm-hmm. and they must have done that ten times, and, and and must have been quite wet and dirty and scratched from all the brambles. Uh, and then uh, along came the police vehicle, and obviously they threw themselves into the into the brambles again. And uh, mysteriously, this police vehicle just stopped right next to them. And the two police officers got out and walked straight to where they were hiding. And they had no idea how that had happened. Yeah. And, yeah. and they they said, you know, they, they'd not seen the car as far as they were aware. The car was at home uh, and so on and so forth. And of course, they were mm. they were shown the, the thermal imaging video of them getting out of the car and yeah, yeah. walking down the road and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah. So that's so, the story. So obviously, tons of pursuits. What what are the other kind of things that you would do? Uh, you know, where a helicopter really helps. Searching for people was seventy percent of what we did. Really? Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Whether that was uh, people who'd had it on their toes after committing a crime, mm-hmm. um, and and as you say, Suffolk's a very rural county. 
yeah uh, so so quite often they were they were hiding out in rural uh, areas or, or missing persons right uh, so lots and lots of um, of elderly people who'd, mm-hmm. who'd wandered off yeah who were suffering from dementia or something like that and uh, and had, had wandered off uh children mm. uh uh despondent people who were off to do themselves harm um and as i say people who'd made off after after um a, a burglary or whatever yeah 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 and um i mean obviously in that volume of people you're talking about a lot of people but uh you know, was your success rate reasonably good in terms of um finding people i i think that um it was something like 30 missing persons a year we found that we didn't believe would have been found in time otherwise right quite a that, lot that was the average yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah so um so yeah that's a that's a fair old number of 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 lives that it, it made a difference to there so let's just talk about how things changed and so you were obviously working in suffolk um and all the other forces had their own helicopters generally speaking and then um changes sort of came on the horizon um, so I'm slightly hazy about the rationale for that, but I'm assuming that it would would have been about cost cutting. Yeah, I mean, if people are being honest, it was about cost cutting. Unfortunately, the people who were who were bringing in NPAS weren't honest with it. They said it was about efficiency. They right. said they would be both more efficient and more effective. Right. Um, uh, how you do that by having fewer helicopters and fewer staff, it was never quite clear to me. Mm. Um, and and 10 years later it doesn't seem to be very clear to them either mm. but it, it was all about saving money right. um, but right from the start they went through it they went about it in completely the wrong way mm. um i mean for instance to start off with npas was going to be a, a, a standalone agency so npas sorry for anybody that's national police aviation service yeah yeah uh, um at least that's what it that's what it's supposed to sound yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It was going to be a standalone agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the intention was for it to save 15% of costs. And um, they got a fair old way down that planning until they realized that a standalone agency would have to pay VAT, which of course police forces don't pay. So they would mm-hmm. save 15% of costs and then pay 15% VAT on it. So instantly would save absolutely nothing. Right. So they so they changed tax slightly and decided that they needed a lead force so it would be part of a, a police force. And right. uh, West Yorkshire took on. Uh, That's right. Uh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, it was a bit of an odd one, wasn't it? But I suppose someone had to. But um, yeah. So did you notice a uh, how long was the sort of transition then between you know you having your own force helicopter and the NPAS project kind of bear, you know, coming sort of fully to life, so to speak? It took a couple of years. Uh, we were one of the first helicopters to move over. The Southeast region was the first to go over and, and, and we were, uh, we were, um, we were on there on day one, the 1st of October, 2012. And uh, it had been on the horizon for at least a couple of years by then. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd done a couple of trials of working in in a borderless way um so uh we were working first of all with with uh, cambridgeshire and uh, norfolk and the three the three forces worked together without borders so right. the closest helicopter or the best helicopter would go to a job regardless of which force it was in uh, and then later on we had another trial which also included essex and kent 
mm-hmm. um, and um, that was actually uh, the the trial that led directly to uh, to to NPAS being formed, and the 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 way in which that trial was run is the way in which NPAS was run. Right. Okay. So um, so eventually you're sort of part of this new national unit um, mm. for better or worse, and certainly from anyone I've ever spoken to, it's for worse. Um, and what was the biggest sort of difference uh, from, a, from a day-to-day point of view that you noticed, putting aside from an operational, I better, better ask that question more specifically, from an operational point of view, what was the biggest difference you noticed? Well, on the day that um, I left Suffolk and moved to the National Police Air Service, they changed my job title from mm. Air Observer to Tactical Flight Officer. Mm. That was a, 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 a title that was used in, in some forces. Um, but I lost all tactical control on that same day. Right. Prior to that, you know, a police officer would have asked for the helicopter. I would have spoken to the police officer and said, what can I do for you? He would tell me, I said, oh, actually, that's not something we can do. Or, yes, we can come and do that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, put points on and we'll be there as quickly as we can. Whatever was needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but when NPAS started, <clears throat> I had no tactical control. The police officer would ask their own control room for a helicopter. The control room inspector or supervisor would decide whether that was suitable. They mm. would tell a call taker to call West Yorkshire Police. They would call West Yorkshire Police. West Yorkshire would take the details down and decide that whether or not a helicopter should attend. And then West Yorkshire Police would get in touch with what they thought was the most appropriate helicopter. Mm often to be told that that helicopter for whatever reason weather or unserviceability couldn't go uh, and so they would contact another helicopter and the helicopter crew would ask all of the questions that they would have asked of the police officer in the first instance yeah which the controllers because they weren't air observers hadn't mm. asked and mm. they would and that would go up and down the chain until it was too late for the helicopters to be of any use and the only thing that NPAS seemed to care about certainly in the early days was how soon after the call did you take off mm. not were you of any use when you that got was the only that was the only kind of performance indicator they were interested in as far as as far as we could tell on the on, you know, yeah. as, as practitioners yeah so it's hardly exactly lean systems, is it? Um, it's no. probably, it sounds like a death by death by sort of paralysis by analysis, isn't it? Really, the 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 two trials that I mentioned, the one that we did with three forces, what we did was we had a common uh, air to ground frequency for for the three control rooms. Hmm. So and for the and for the officers as well. So if somebody in those three forces needed a helicopter, they would shout up, "Can I have a helicopter in wherever?" And the nearest helicopter would say, "We'll take that one and go." Mm. For the for the bigger trial, um, Kent joined in, but they didn't have a helicopter, so they were the control element of that. Mm. So this is where it was trialed: the mm. idea of our control room getting in touch with them and them getting mm. in touch with the the. And it didn't work. It was mm. it was a, it was a, a complete mess, as we all knew it was going to be. Mm. Simply because you're putting an extra layer. In yeah, there. yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't matter how good they were, and and they were great. But it doesn't mm. matter how good they were. You're putting you're putting a delay into the system. You're building mm. it in. Yeah, um, yeah. And which of course, in a, which in a very time critical scenario, which most nearly all of these things are, particularly yeah. particularly a crime in action or a pursuit, yeah. uh, is uh, it's just a kiss of death, isn't it? 
absolutely yeah and there'd been lots of work done to say that if a police helicopter turned up within the first 20 minutes of the incident then you were highly likely to be successful mm. and as soon as that 20 minute uh, period was ended it, the chances of success dropped off a cliff right and of course if you're spending 10 minutes of that talking backwards and forwards mm. yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, I'm a bit out of the loop on all of this stuff now. Is is Empire still in existence? Is it still, or is it, was it? Did it sort of like, did it sort of get kicked into the long grass? No, it's it's clinging in there. It's done ten years. Um, West Yorkshire have now finally put their hands up and said, "Look, we can't do this. We don't know how to do this. Uh, we're going to have to give up." So they're giving up next year. They won't right. be doing it as from as from uh, I think it's October next year, um, and we don't know who will. Really, so it's a massive uncertainty for everyone. Yeah, yeah. but they've just they've just chopped everything and saved saved next to nothing. Yeah, um, it still costs about forty something million a year, mm. uh, but now it's with um, uh, you know fourteen bases rather than thirty one. Right. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, as you know, anyone who listens to my podcast regularly will know I've written a book called Tango Juliet Foxtrot TJF, uh, as in the jobs fucked. And, um, you know, my basic kind of premise or argument is that whilst TJF, something that police officers have been saying for a very long time, uh, sort of slightly tongue in cheek, there is a definite sense that um, the job is actually a bit fucked now, you know, after sort of 10, 11 years of uh, conservative government. And that's not a political point. That's just a, a financial, um, you know, statement, really, in terms of the cost cutting. But it sounds from what you've said that, um, you know, NPAS was probably one of the first parts of the policing family to sort of feel that pain, really, of uh, austerity. Yeah, because, you know, it was a time of austerity and helicopters are, are obviously <clears throat> expensive things to run. Uh, mm. So uh, it was, uh, as you say, it was uh, very much a, 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 an easy, easy target to go for. The sad thing is that you could have saved far more than they even expected to save just by regionalizing everything. So mm. you have, a, you know, if you had a central base that that bought helicopters and fuel and helmets and flying suits, all that kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. so you you buy in four hundred rather than twenty. Of course, you're going to get better cost, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and then if it had just been regionalized with mm -hmm. you know regional talk groups that mm -hmm. everybody could just call up on and say send a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't have <clears throat> you wouldn't have had to do all this uh, chopping of uh, of bases and of aircraft and of yeah crews. So what's your what are your thoughts on drones then? Because obviously a lot of forces are now investing in drones um and certainly my old force west midlands was quite late to that party but but i know that they've now got sort of they're using drones quite a lot do you think that drones can replace um you know a lot of the functions uh, that a helicopter would have been able to to provide i do but i don't think uh it'll be for another 10 20 years yeah. Um, the kind of drones that forces can afford to buy and to run are line of sight. Right. Uh, so the operator has to be there and, and, and able to see the drone. Um, so 
you know, you've got to get there in a car and get the drone out and so on and so forth. So that's okay if you've got a missing person search. Yeah. <clears throat> but you can't have the spatial awareness looking mm. through the camera of a drone mm. that you've got sat actually in the helicopter uh, mm. above the scene. It's just not possible to get that. You know, the, yeah. our, our camera operators didn't have the same awareness as as the pilot and the other and the rear seat observer. Yeah. Because they were drawn into that little that you know that tiny little um uh, camera yeah yeah uh, and the beyond visual line of sight drones which npas are still saying will you know will will make everything come good uh, very quickly um i believe that they've got a very long way to go before they're able to do what they would hope at a reasonable cost you know yeah. obviously the military use use drones and and, mm. and control them from from remote locations mm. but they spend on one drone what we spend on police helicopters in a year right yeah yeah uh, and there's also how are you going to use it mm. when in the uk airspace the uk airspace is very very crowded right you know we're a small island with lots and lots of air traffic of all sorts yeah. of different yeah types when they operate most of these beyond the visual line of sight drones they set up special danger areas if you like for right. them to operate in so all the other traffic stays out right we can't we, do that in the uk you can you 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 can't do that if you're if, you know if you're if you're doing a vehicle pursuit around the m25 you can't mm. just stop all the london airports while you do that just on the london thing did well, again, I'm sure my ignorance here. Did did the did the Met get swept up in the end passing, or did they stand alone? Kicking and screaming, they did get swept up into it. Yes. Did they? Um, they were dragged to North Weald, right. um, and eventually the Essex helicopter ended up there as well. Right. Uh, so NPAS built a, a, a huge hangar there for um, for the Met. Uh, one, what were the Met? One four fives and for the one three fives, and also for the fixed wing aircraft that the Met were going to. That the the NPAS were going to use to uh, to fill in all the massive gaps that they created, right? Um, which has never ever worked. They've got they've got some at NPAS Doncaster. Mm. Um, it it took years and years to get them online, yeah. um, and uh, and and now they're just used locally. They don't fill in any of those gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the Met have, uh, have finally uh, won, uh, as the Met generally do, mm-hmm. and uh, they're hopefully i think moving back to uh, to lippitz hill lippitz yeah well yeah. hopefully i don't know whether that's going to be possible um but uh, you know i i've been out of this for for 8 yeah. years or so now so right, I've, only, yeah. I've only got yeah, yeah. bits and pieces on it uh, but the met are breaking free uh, yeah so it's um it doesn't come without risks does it that job you know whilst in many ways you know you're not going to be rolling around in the gutter with um drug addicts with knives and uh, dirty syringes or or um driving at you know 120 miles an hour um, after some maniac who's high on crack cocaine but obviously in 2013 we had the horrific crash of this police scotland helicopter mm-hmm. didn't we when the yep. entire the entire crew of three were were killed weren't they yeah, and that and, must have come as a terrible shock to to all of you and your colleagues it did i mean there, there had been there had been other crashes over the years uh where the the level in, of, uh, of injury had, had had varied from you know bumps and bruises and there had been fatalities in the past uh but that 
that was a, a you know a huge a huge um, mm. kick to all of us i was i was airborne in the same type of helicopter over suffolk at the same time that it at the time oh, that it really? happened. oh god and we we landed from that job and uh, while uh, while i was uh, putting the information on the computer our pilot bill davis wandered through to the crew room and popped the evening news on and uh, mm. obviously the news was uh, the police scotland helicopter which had crashed onto the clutter vaults pub in glasgow mm. And um, as I say, the same type of helicopter at, at exactly the same time. And that really did hit me hard. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure he did lots of other people. Um, I kind of lost confidence. by then. Mm. But by then I knew that I was leaving air support anyway. Right. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd already, I already knew that I was leaving. And did they grow up, because it was the same model of um, helicopter, did they ground your aircraft um, until an investigation, or did they carry on and sort of risk, risk assess it? We, we carried on, uh, but then there were lots and lots of tests over the next couple of weeks of, uh, of fuel gauges and, and, and that kind mm. of thing. Um, mm. Mm. It was found that, uh, that a lot of the fleet, the fuel gauges weren't, particularly accurate so they ran out of fuel did they well yes and no uh, they they had fuel on board uh, but the way the helicopter worked the way the ec-135 works is it's got a main fuel tank and then it's got two small feeder tanks which right. actually feed the engines so you have to pump fuel from the main tank into the two small feeder tanks before they go into the engines and and they had the pumps off which transfer the fuel so there was a about 20 minutes, I think there's something like that, 70 kilos of fuel mm. uh, in the main tank, but none in the tanks that were feeding the engines. Right. So, yeah, well, you can't even imagine. I mean, you also have to mention the seven members of the public who died as well in that bar. It was, it was obviously a tragedy for the crew of the helicopter and their families, and, but also a tragedy for many people who were on the ground as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I honestly can't imagine how they. How they got themselves into that situation, uh, and, and I'll never quite. Know. I know I can understand how it went wrong at the end. That mm. that's actually reasonably clear. But how did they get into that situation mm. in the first instance? I've been in in situations where we were low on fuel, and believe me, everybody was asking lots of questions. Right. Um, yeah, I'm sure. And yeah. and deciding where we were going to land and how soon. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and how they weren't doing that, I don't know, because it was mm. a very experienced pilot and two very experienced crew. And then the pilots, did you, what was the relationship like with the pilots? Um, did, did, did you sort of, were they sort of posted to the unit for quite a long period of time? Did you get to know them quite well? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it varied in, uh, sometimes they were, um, they were sort of subcontracted in. Right. Uh, and other times they were, working actually for the force mm. uh, and then for NPAS and so on and so forth. Uh, but we had a, a fairly steady uh, bunch of, of pilots that we flew with for, for many, many years. Yeah, Because it's quite a specific type of flying, isn't it, really? It's yeah. not like, you know, an air air ambulance. You, I mean, I don't know. What do I know? I know bugger all, don't I? But, um, you know, it strikes me that if you're flying an air ambulance, you have to get to the location of the casualty find somewhere safe to land pick up the casualty and get back to the hospital so there's a you know i'm sure it's not without its risks and challenges and all sorts particularly in a crowded urban area where you can't find anywhere to 
to put down. Um, but with a police helicopter, you know, it's it's you're monitoring chaos from the air, aren't you? Yeah, the the pilots that we had, um, almost without exception, I trusted implicitly. Well, you had to, uh, you know, mm. you were you were putting your life in their hands. Yeah. Um, and um, most of our pilots were ex-army air corps, um, right. because the army gave them the type of you know rough and ready dirty flying skills that they yeah, needed to be yeah, able yeah. to do the job Tactical that we did flying yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah brilliant so so you left when what year did you finish up then uh 2014 right okay and what did you do when you finished uh, i went to work for the civil aviation authority all oh, right okay um not flying or were you, what were you doing no there? no no inspecting airports and, and airlines all right and, and are you still doing that now i'm still doing that right now all right okay yeah. good excellent so yeah. I don't suppose as I'm sure COVID has probably had an impact on you the same way it has with everybody else, but uh... a little. I mean, it's had a massive impact on on airports and airlines. Uh, but luckily, mm. I've been I've been working on uh, cargo for the last couple of years, and right. that's um, if anything has has increased over over the time. So it's uh, it's obviously something that's uh, a big part of your life still. Then uh, everything, all things aviation, really. And are you are you do you do any kind of flying for pleasure now or are you sort of feet firmly on the ground no i'm, I'm very much in the air as often as i can oh, okay. uh, I, I i'm a private pilot um i've I, i've been a private pilot on and off for since i was 17 right um, big big periods of off when i couldn't afford it but yeah, yeah. Uh, but for the last few years uh, i've been uh, i've been keeping that going and i'm actually just um now buying a, a share in a in a 1946 Aronka Champ. Oh wow, fantastic! Oh, I'm dead jealous because so, um. So learning to fly that will be my 2022 challenge. Oh, fantastic! Oh, I'm really jealous because I I love uh, I love airplanes. I'm I'm a bit of a saddo, you know. We live um quite close to a private airfield, um which is a busy one, um and. Uh, we get a lot of really interesting planes coming over our house. Um, not not just our house, everybody else's house in the area. Um, uh, we get Spitfires and Mustangs and um, lots of Second World War warbirds, and and I, I get very excited whenever they come over and rush out into the back garden and and then take off to the airfield to to see if I can see them because you can obviously get up very close to them and they're they're great. They're just amazing, aren't they? Yeah, well, I, I grew up in the back streets of Salford. And when I was seven, um, I was taken to Barton Aerodrome for the day. I don't remember yeah. why. But um, it, it's only about four miles as the crow flies from my house. But it was like a different world. Yeah. And, you know, the, all, the, the, all the grass, for instance, we didn't see, didn't know what grass was. Uh, yeah. and, um, and, you know, all the people. I think yeah. the people that I'd met up until that, that point in my life all looked like they'd just walked out of a Lowry painting. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but these people all looked pink cheeked and fresh faced and happy and they're yeah, flying yeah. these little white airplanes around. And so since I was seven, which is quite a while now, it's more than 10 years. Um, that's uh, that's just been my absolute passion. Oh, brilliant. I'm dead jealous. It's one of those things that I would love to do. Um, but yeah, it's not a cheap hobby, is it? And uh it's not, but but the uh, the seventy five year old champ is about as cheap as it gets. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. rather you than me. I'll I'll wave you off from the ground and uh, wish you luck. I <laughs> oh, see. I was going to invite you along for a flight. <laughs> 
Uh, let's let's talk about your book for a bit because, um, like me, you've written a book, and uh, so it's above the law: adventures yep. in a police helicopter. And it was published, uh, like my book, uh, this year. Most of my book was published in November, uh, and yours was uh, July, I believe. So, how's right. how's uh, how's that been for you? It's it's been it's been an incredible journey. Um, mm. I, I've been I've been mad about writing for as long as I uh, have about flying, almost pretty mm. much. Uh, I remember a, a teacher at school uh, asked us to write an essay. Well, I think it was about eight about life in the future. And uh, I wrote this this essay full of uh, childish jokes and silly puns. Mm. Uh, anybody who's read Above the Law will see that I've not changed that much. <laughs> and uh, she read it out to the class and yeah. the class all liked it. And I thought, this is brilliant. This I'll do this. Mm. Um, so I've written for magazines and things over the right. years. But this is the first. Uh, Aviation first... magazines. Yeah. Yeah. Right. OK. Yeah. So uh, so how long did it take you to write it? Um, it took me about three months to do the first draft. Right. Um, I'd probably been uh, taking notes for a couple of months before that, going right. through my old logbooks and seeing if I had enough, yeah, yeah. Uh, enough to to make a book. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it hadn't occurred to me until the middle of 2017 um, that I might write a book about my time on the helicopter. Yeah. But I, I was reading a book by a chap called Jerry Grayson called Rescue Pilot about his time in the Royal Navy flying helicopters, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, I've got that. I've got that many stories. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as I say, I spent a couple of months going through my logbooks and and making sure I ha- did have that number of stories. Yeah, uh, and then about three months to to write the first draft, um, and then um, I I had about six months um, recovering from an operation mm-hmm. where uh, I could concentrate on um, on editing it. So titivating it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And moving everything around so it so it told a story rather yeah. than it was just a bunch of anecdotes. Yeah. 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 And um, dare I ask uh, what your experience was like trying to get it published? Because certainly, you know, my own experience and the experience of pretty much every other first time author I've ever spoken to is getting a publisher is a bloody nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I offered it to, uh, to all the obvious ones. I, um, I managed to get an agent and, right. and sh- she, was, she was really keen on it uh, mm. and offered it to a lot of the big publishers who all said, you know, not not for our list at the moment or whatever yeah, it is yeah. they say yeah, yeah. um and and apparently said lots of lovely things about it but not the loveliest thing which yeah yeah is we'd like to publish it <laughs> um so so we agreed that we would part ways she could go off and do other projects right and then um last year i was driving and listening to our local radio station bbc radio suffolk yeah and there's a chap on there called simon edge who was talking about his new novel that had just been published anyone for edmund yeah. And uh, he said he wrote for, uh, well, he said that he was published by um, Lightning Books and that they had a, a sister press uh, called iBooks. Right. Uh, and the purpose of iBooks was to publish nonfiction books uh, from ordinary people who'd done extraordinary things. And I thought, right. well, you know, that sounds like me. Oh. So, uh, so I sent them an email and they picked it up straight away. Oh, brilliant. Excellent. Well, I, I wish I'd known about them. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm I I was published by Biteback, and they've been brilliant. And I can't I can't I can't fault them really. And I feel immensely grateful um, to them for taking a chance with me and uh, and everything. But but yeah, it's a real battle, isn't it? Um, to try and get someone, particularly when you've you put so much work into it, um, and it becomes a bit of a labour of love. And you know, uh, you treat you treat it like a sickly child, don't you? And um, <laughs> You know, so so 
you know, having someone who also feels excited and enthusiastic enough about it that they actually want to invest in it is a, yeah. is a real, uh, is a real, you know, joy, isn't it? Oh yeah. So, I'm, I'm massively grateful to, to Dan Hisco and the, the team at iBooks for doing that. Brilliant. And it's doing well, isn't it? I was, you know, you've got lots of great reviews, haven't you? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's wonderful. It's really humbling as well for all these people that, you know, you don't know to, to say how great your book is. Yeah. It was, it's kind of interesting when it's published because it is non-fiction it's absolutely my thoughts and it's the truth as i see it mm. um to think that people were out there reading my mind yeah. people yeah. knew people knew what i was thinking so that was that was quite interesting when it was first published. yeah yeah no i know exactly what you mean it's um you have to really lay yourself bare don't you and um you know certainly my, my book's quite quite controversial really in many ways i've been really yeah. quite very critical of um you know certainly the political interference and some of the media treatment of policing and the weak managed weak leadership at the top um you know all these things so yeah so it's quite um quite nerve-wracking isn't it really to put yourself out there in, in that way but uh, but no it's great and uh, i really take my hat off to you are you gonna are you gonna write another one yes yeah, it won't be about helicopters, but I've always liked uh, I've always liked travel books, uh, right. and uh, and I do a lot of travelling for my job at the moment. So hopefully, right. I'll I'll find enough to uh, to to fill a book with uh, with my thoughts about my travels. Hopefully, that one will get out there as well. Brilliant. Listen, I think that's probably not a bad place to stop. Um, we've done about an hour, haven't we? So, um, Adrian, it's been a real pleasure, mate, and uh, thank you ever so much for you know taking the time to talk to me and uh it's been really interesting i've learned a lot um and you i know about 500 percent more about police helicopters now than i did before our conversation so uh, that's fantastic that. I've, re I've really enjoyed it and thank you for in inviting me along oh you're a star thanks ever so much Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go.